But I'm going back to James chapter 1, okay? And I know that's uh, partly responsible for, uh, by Cliff. That's him working in me because now I can't teach on one subject just one time and move on, right? So the <laughs> problem is I only teach about three times a year, so we're going to be in James chapter 1 for the next 15 years, okay? So <laughs> that's the way it works. But uh, I always give him a hard time about it. But then he, I mean, again, isn't that amazing how he can spend that much time? And, and I mean that totally positive. How he can spend that much time in one subject and still bring something to me that I sit in this audience and I go, where did that come from, you know? And so uh, that's always amazing to me. So that's, uh, we're going to talk about James chapter 1 again. I, I spoke on it about maybe a month ago or so ago, and uh, I knew I wasn't done with it when I got started. There's just so much in this book. And so do you guys remember handwritten letters? <laughs> remember those things? Yeah. For you younger people, what a handwritten letter is, okay, that's where somebody takes a piece of wood and turns it into a piece of paper, right? And they, they take their hand and, and this thing called a pen, and they use their hand to make characters on the paper, right? Something you would call their personal font, right? And so uh, that's what a handwritten letter, and then they take it to a thing called a post office, right? And, and, they, and they send it, not via the internet, believe it or not, it goes via the post office, right? Which I never understood that word, post office, right? <laughs> post, meaning after, right? But yet it's never open after my office. So I don't understand why it's called post office. Do you, you, anybody ever understand that, right? You got to go at noon if you want to go to the post office. I didn't figure that out. But anyway, remember what I remember about writing letters specifically, and we're going to talk about James's letter today, is that the hardest part of a letter to write to me was generally that very first line. Remember that? Okay. I always struggled with this part because I always felt like I just couldn't jump right into my point of my letter I was writing to somebody. And uh, it, it was a little source of frustration for me. I mean, uh, today, if you were to go out shopping, for instance, and you found a really cool pair of blue pants, you might text someone and say, I have blue pants, right? Reasonable comment, okay? In the text world, that works. But when the typical communication, that's not good right there, okay. When the typical <laughs> communication was the handwritten letter, okay, it, you couldn't start your letter like that, could you? It'd have been weird. Dear John, I have blue pants, right? <laughs> it wouldn't have worked. What, John wouldn't have read the rest of the letter. I wouldn't have, right? That's why we typically, in our letters, write something, something along the lines of, dear John, okay? Why do we say dear John? Dear John, <laughs> I hope this letter finds you well. And when I was a kid and I wrote letters, I may just turn that off here in just a second. All right. um, when, I, when I was a kid, when I started writing my letters, that's the way I started every one of them. Okay, Because I just couldn't think of any other way. I would sit there and stress over this about how can I write this letter? And inevitably, I would come up. Dear John, how are you? I'm fine. Anybody else like me? Can anybody else write a letter other than that? Okay, yeah. Well, you, there are some professionals. I see that. Right, that's very good, right? Um, you know, go back to texting for a second. You remember when texting verse first got started, right? Did, did you ever get a text from somebody who wrote a text like it was a handwritten letter? You ever get that? Something like, uh, say they wanted to ask you lunch. They might text you, text you on your phone. Dear John, I hope this text finds you happy and well. I'm sending this to you today to ascertain as to the possibility of us breaking bread together. Please respond to this invitation so I can make the appropriate accommodations for our future event. I look forward to our potential meeting with warmest regards, Ed, right? That's, anybody, anybody still get texts from people like that? Come on. You know, are you one of them that sends texts like that still? Come on. Yeah, we're in church. Don't lie. Okay, that's, that's good. We're all there. You know, as texting went forward, it kind of got shortened up a little bit, didn't it? Right? So if you're going to ask somebody to lunch, 
you might say something like, sup, dude, let's go do the lunch thing, right? But today in texting, because of Twitter and all those other things, right, I can hold a complete conversation with somebody about going to lunch with two Jeff Foxworthy words and one word for myself. I can have a whole conversation and say three words, right? The first one is, jeet yet, right? Which means what? Did you eat yet, right? Yonk to, right? Do you want to, right? Those are Jeff Foxworthy. And mine is squeak. What's that? Let's go eat, right? So that's how you can say a conversation in text. You can say, jeet yet, yonk to, squeak, right? Does that work for everybody? That's how texting works, right? (laughs) Yeah, I've lost my mind. It's okay. And we're turning this off. Let's just forget it. Yeah. I'm going to leave it up there a second because there there is part of this I want to show you, all right? The bottom line is the way that we communicate has definitely changed, hasn't it? Definitely changed. We get a lot more communications these days. I was listening, actually, thinking about this. I was listening to sports radio quite literally yesterday while I was thinking about this lesson. I was driving down the road, and Doug Gottlieb, who is the host on ESPN Radio, gave a perfect illustration of how we treat the information that we receive today. Um, He was speaking about a sports reporter that had broken a story nationwide. I mean, he told everybody, okay? And the bad part was he told everybody the complete wrong thing, right? Can you imagine? You're the guy. You're really excited about the fact, because you know in in, in the news business, breaking the story, what, what comes across the screen when there's something new? Breaking news, right? And and it's never broken, but it's still breaking, right? Breaking news, right? And suddenly somebody, and he did this nationwide about, it was a pretty significant thing about a, uh, I think it was a uh, basketball player, I think it was, that had a, uh, was getting a contract worth millions and millions and millions of dollars, right? But it was wrong. All his information was wrong. And evidently what the reporter had not read his entire text, okay? And uh, and, and that caused him, he, he read part of it, thought he got it, and then he misreported a significant story out. And now he's out there trying to tell everybody, well, what I meant to say is, why do they say that, right? Why don't they just say, hey, I made a mistake, right? Evidently, can't do that in the news. But Doug Gottlieb, this is the interesting part to me. Doug Gottlieb was defending the reporter in a way that is perfect for what we're going to look at in James today, all right? He did so by stating that he couldn't remember the last time that he actually read an entire text. Anybody with me on that? Okay. We get so many of those things. He said he reads a few words, right? And then he assumes he has it. I have done that many times, right? Think about that. How many times do you actually read, especially if it's one of those big old long, does, do you even read it if it's a big, like if it gets over a certain amount of words, that's a personal foul. I just delete it, all right? Okay, so, uh, but, uh, you know, if, do you actually read every single word of that text? Is this like, Totally driving you guys crazy over here. Okay, good. We're good. All right. Do you have Bibles? Cool. All right, good. Because you're going to need them. Go to James chapter one. All right, it's done. I'm done with it. Okay. I sure hope I have everything written in here that I wanted on there. So it'll be good. So um, how many times do you read the entire text? And then he went further. He said, how many times do you read an entire email? <laughs> Uh, I don't, I've missed meetings because I didn't read an entire email. Because the last line, hey, our meeting's at 4 o'clock, not 3 o'clock. And I'm at, you know, 2 o'clock or whatever, not, or 6 o'clock or whatever. And I missed the whole thing, right? And then he really got me. He said, what about do you listen to all your voicemail? Okay, be honest. 
How many of you even listen to your voicemails, right? <laughs> Do you? Do you listen? Because I'll have a hundred of them in a day because I'm a national sales manager of a medical company. My reps will call me constantly. And a lot of them are like, I have blue pants. Okay, I just can't deal with it, right? But so I just like, if I see that you called, that's like the missed call notification to me. The, email, the voicemail is, it's, I, I very seldom listen to those, right? I gotta be honest, right? That one, but here's what it does. It, today's communication, the way we are, it causes us to read little and assume much, doesn't it? Yeah, and boy, have I made some mistakes doing that. I was thinking about all this uh, as I was reviewing a little history on the book of James. Um, I was reading and I was learning about the importance of this letter, and man, did I find out how important this particular letter is. James, James' letter, so very, first of all, it's important because of who wrote it. Um, James was very important to the church. We all know that. He was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Most people will generally state that this book, book was written uh, by James, who was the half-brother of Jesus. I mean, there's some arguing out there a little bit, but pretty much everybody does. And I'm sorry, I don't have Becky to bring my note pages in here, so um, I, you're going to have to take those little cards and make notes on here if, if there's anything noteworthy. All right, so I'm just, that's, I'm not very administrative. Have you all noticed that? So uh, anyway, all right, no comments, Doug, all right? <laughs> But most people will, will, will agree that James is the one who wrote this book. Um, and he was the half-brother of Jesus. After his resurrection, after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus appeared to James. Man, can you imagine what that must have been like? Uh, every time I think about that, actually, there's a side note. I just, can you imagine after you knew that Jesus died and he appears to you, what that would have done to you? And it did it to James, let me tell you, because he wasn't a believer before. We all know that, right? But he was after that, and he was, um, he, was so, he was so drastically changed by that encounter with Jesus that he believed. He believed so much that he become, became vitally important to the church. He believed so much that it cost him his life, literally. James was killed because of how much he believed in Jesus Christ's resurrection. That's powerful. So when a man like that writes a letter... I want to pay attention to every single word that he writes. When a man who loses his life because of how much he believes in something, and he's the leader of a church, because it's not like when I wrote a letter, right? I want to, I want to pay attention to every word. It's not when I wrote a letter where, the, where only the middle part of it's really got anything on it, okay? It's a little bit different. The second thing that is important to consider about this letter, the reason I think it's so important is who it's written to. Who was the book of James written to? What does it say? Twelve tribes, or the diaspora is what some of the versions will say, all right? Now, the diaspora, it was interesting when I looked into this. Um, this applies to all the people who were taken into captivity and goes all the way back to the B.C. days, the Old Testament days, back even to the book of Daniel during the Babylonian captivity. But it also applies to anyone else who had been carted off in captivity, who was Jewish and was carted off in captivity, or even in a broad sense, those who either left or were forced out of Jerusalem. They were called the diaspora, the dispersion, those who had been dispersed around the world. This is interesting to me. The people of the diaspora, the diaspora rather, they used letters from people like James and Paul and others as direction for their lives as they followed Jesus Christ. I mean, what else could they study, right? 
in terms of following Jesus Christ at that time, what else did they have? They didn't have the Bible, okay? So these letters from James and Paul and everybody else, all the writers who wrote these in the New Testament, these letters would be read in these churches over and over and over and over again. N.T. Wright uh, said in a statement interview, I have to use N.T. Wright because Cliff does all the time because he had dinner with him. Remember, remember how he told us that all the time, right? So I got to use N.T. Wright one time. It's not that big a deal, but I just wanted to say his name. But uh, N.T. Wright stated in an interview that, we, that they weren't just writing down what somebody had, to bre- had for breakfast. That's the significance of these letters. That's why people wonder sometimes, did they get it right? You know, did, they, did all the copies, of, is it all right? Yeah, it's right because it's not what somebody had for breakfast. It's all important information, Okay. And as you can imagine, the people who received these letters from James and Paul and the others have been starved for some kind of information because they're the diaspora. They're not living in Jerusalem. They're out around the rest of the world and they're collecting together to have some letter that's written by a really important guy named James who was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Just as a complete side note, right? and it's completely off the topic here, but I, I just thought about this. You ever notice that God uses other people to help his people. I mean, I've heard it said, and I think this is so very true, that God's plan A is us. And there is no plan B. He intends to use other people to help his people, right? What if James had written his letter? What if he just didn't do it, right? What if, what if Paul and the others hadn't written their letter? What if those men had not written the letters that were designed to help people? And my point is, is that if you don't think that what we do in our lives is important, think of Paul, think of James, and then think again, all right? Because what we do in life matters to someone because that's the way God designed it, isn't it? God intended for each of us, for our community of believers to help one another. The bottom line, back to my topic here, you know, I'm so ADD, I gotta keep going on. Um, The bottom line is that this letter was written by James and it might have been the only instruction. I don't know, but it occurred to me that it might be the only instruction some believers ever saw. This is an important letter, isn't it? I mean, all of these letters are. Every single word of it is important. All right, so with that in mind, with all that in mind, I went back to the top left, to the very, very top left of the letter, to the very, very first line. And I read these words that are supposed to be on the screen right now, okay? In James chapter one, verse one, James writes, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I'm gonna make a real quick comment. There's a lot of reasons why I think this was written, but there's just one that just keeps flooding in my mind. You know, James did not believe in Jesus as as the Messiah until after, he's, after he appeared to him, right? And I just wonder when he writes that, I always wonder why he wrote a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's a couple of reasons, but one of them that just keeps in my mind, don't you think maybe he's up there just kind of apologizing a little bit? Hey, I am a bondservant of God and I didn't get it right before, but I do now. And I'm a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, I just, I don't know if that's what he did, but I just kind of hear that when, it, when he's writing. But think about this. Think about these words right here. This is an important letter. We have definitely established that, right? And these are the first words that people are going to to read from the, maybe the first words of the only letter they'll ever, they're gonna savor this time and time again. 
So when it comes up and he writes, he doesn't write, how are you, okay? I hope this letter finds you well. That's not what he writes. Because I think even James knew how important this letter was, maybe. James writes, bondservant. This is what was interesting to me. The leader of the church begins his statement, his letter, by stating that he is a servant. Now, I, I realize, and more than that, he's a servant leader. And I realize that there are movements in our American business that are moving toward this idea of servant leadership. I know there's organizations like Giant and Mastermind and some, some Christian-based organizations that are really having, some people in this room are part of that. Um, and, and they're having incredible impact. But isn't overall the idea of servant leadership still very counterintuitive? Very intuitive. But to James, all the way back in the first century, a leader first is a servant. That's powerful to me. I need to learn that better. I'm, I'm, that's what I need to learn is I'm leading my company as a national sales manager. Okay, that doesn't mean a whole lot. I'm also the pencil sharpener and the trash man. Okay, but the, uh, I got to do a lot of things, right? I sit at my desk in my house and I manage reps and I train reps and stuff. But sometimes we get into conflict. Go figure, right? Sales rep dis- disagreeing with people, right? Being a servant leader is something I have to keep because I've got some guys last week that pushed that, okay? And it was tough. And, I, and luckily, God, you know, isn't it interesting how God puts certain scriptures in your, in your way, right? Like, clunk, right there it is, right? And you walk right into it. That's what I was thinking about this week is I was dealing with a guy that was, we'll just say he was being difficult. But James writes, a leader is a servant. And here's something to consider. With James, this is not a perspective or a goal, or a business model, if you will, if you look at the life of James specifically, being a servant to God and the Lord Jesus Christ is absolutely a lifestyle. It's not just a thought in his head. I mean, it's not just an idea because look at what he would have gained from it. It was an idea and a perspective to live better. What did he gain from that? Persecution and what? Yeah. So the concept of James as a... As a uh, uh, as a servant, it, it's, a, it's definitely a lifestyle. And look what else he doesn't do. And this just impacted me a bunch, okay? Every sales and marketing cell in my body, okay, would have suggested to James that he use his relationship, i.e. his half-brothership, if you will, okay, with, with Jesus to build credibility for his letter. I mean, that's not even a bad thing, right? He could have written something like this in his letter, Jesus was my half-brother. I didn't believe in him at first. When I saw him and I knew that he was, had risen from the dead, I believed. Let me share how that changed my life. That'd be plausible, right? Nothing wrong with that. But James doesn't do this. He is already known as the leader of the church, so he has credibility. So he, but he doesn't use his family member to bolster his position. Instead, he chooses something that he believes is more powerful. And the first words that he wants to let people know when he writes this letter that he knows is gonna be read over and over and over again is one thing. A leader really is, first and foremost, a servant. Here's a really cool thing. James is not the only one that does that. Um, look at Romans 1.1. 1, 1. If you got a second, flip over there real quick. Um, 
This is when it's really cool to have the Blue Letter Bible or the BibleHub.com on your phone. Bloop, and you're done. Right? It doesn't do that. Bloop, it doesn't do that noise, just in case you're wondering. But that's what it does. That was me. Bloop. All right, James 1, verses 1. And I've always, we're not going to spend a lot of time here. We'll go back to, to James 1 in just a moment. But look at how Paul starts his letter. Another leader in the church, right? What are the first three words of Romans? Paul, a servant. That word, and it's actually bond servant. When you look at it in the NASB and you're looking at it, and that word, when I looked it up on Blue Letter Bible, all right, I don't work for them, by the way, in case you're wondering. All right, the, uh, the bond servant is the word doulos. And it quite literally means to belong to someone else. And when we think about the life of James, we can see that he really does belong to one another. But if you think about Paul's story and his life, Man, that, the concept of a bondservant just absolutely lies in stark contrast to who he was as Saul before, right? I mean, think about that. Who was Saul? He was rich. He was powerful. He was, um, edu- what? Murderer. Okay, yeah. Rich, powerful. Yeah. Okay, man, I'm trying to set him up, man. Murderer. <laughs> he was. Okay, that's a good point. Very good point. All right. Rich and powerful. I can't even go any further with that, right? How do you go after murder? <laughs> but the, uh, it, it was knowledgeable, right? He was educated by Gamaliel, which is basically like having a Harvard Yale education of that day, all right? Um, he was a leader among the Jewish people, and he, was, he consulted the Jewish leadership. That's who Saul was. You know what the name Saul means? It means one hoped for. This dude was born with attitude, right? All right? But just like James in our letter, Saul's life changes drastically when he met the risen Savior on that road to Damascus. Man, right? And he goes from being powerful Saul to Paul. Anybody know what Paul means? Least one. Isn't that interesting? Paul means least one. It's interesting to me that it's his life as least one that God uses. He didn't really use him as, <laughs> you're right, as Saul, he was the murderer, Right? But as Paul, that's when he became the powerful man in the kingdom of God, isn't it? Least one. And the leader who states in his, the first three words of his, in, in, in NASB anyway, is that a leader is first and foremost a servant. When I read the Bible, I see that this idea of a servant lifestyle is repeated everywhere, all over the Bible, the entire Bible. You know, and it, it's obvious. Okay, this lesson is not about we're supposed to be servants because we get that, don't we? All right? My question is more along the lines of why God says that. I mean, God doesn't need us to serve him necessarily, okay? He wants us to serve him. Irregard- and he wants us to serve him just like James and Paul with that servant lifestyle, irregardless of what life puts before us, doesn't he? That's what he wants. But my question is why? Beyond I'm supposed to serve. What is God teaching me about the servant lifestyle that is beyond serving, okay? And I think we learn that in the very first point that James makes in his letter. Consider it, I'm gonna come right back to this verse that I taught on last time. Consider it what? Joy. What kind of joy? Pure. All, pure, pure in the NIV, all in the NASV. Complete, all joy, Okay. When you encounter various trials. Again, this is the very first point 
that James makes, of all the things that he could go write about at this juncture, he's got, a, he's got a blank check. He can write whatever he wants to write on that page, right? He's already in, introduced himself as a bondservant to God and to Jesus Christ. And the first point that he makes that's going to be read again over and over and over again is to consider it joy in the face of trials. It's going out to all those people who, uh, who consider him the leader of the church. And this is his very first thought. Now, the word that captures my attention in there is that word encounter, right? Now, I looked it up and, because it grabs me. And, and it's not like we're merely being introduced to trials in this, all right? Uh, the definition of this word in the Greek suggests the idea of being surrounded by trials, surrounded, enveloped, encompassed. We've all experienced times when the world closes in on us, haven't we? That's, you almost, when I'm doing that, you can almost feel what I'm talking about, right? When that, when that week just closes in. I can tell you, my family had a week like this about a week and a half ago. It's a powerful week. Scared me to death. My youngest daughter, Morgan, 21 years old, sits in that chair sometimes. Had to have a heart scan, of all things. Heart scan. The same week, my 23-year-old daughter, Megan, who works here, had to have a biopsy for breast cancer. That Friday, my dad was opening, he's 82 years old, was opening up his radiator cap. Boiling water came up here and burned him. He called me, God, I just burned myself. That all happened one week. Just encompassed down on us. We encountered trials that week. And it, was just, it was like a week and a half ago. They were all around us. And then here I read, the, I've been reading this story about James. This bold statement that, Joe, that James says to consider it joy in the midst of trials. You know what? James is right. He's right. My family this time is okay. Absolutely, amen. Yeah, yeah. Megan, no cancer. It was totally unremarkable. Morgan's heart scan came back completely normal. You don't think I didn't take a big old deep breath, okay? <laughs> All right? All right? Man, that was, that was a week. And my dad's arm, while it's burned, okay, he's doing okay. He's getting better. He's, he's healing. He's cantankerous. He'll get, he'll get better because he's honoring, okay? Yeah. Now you know where I get it, right? In the face of a week like my family endured, can we face those times, and here's the perspective, by means of joy. Is that possible? <laughs> when I read this verse during this time, something entered, a question entered my mind. And I, and I just thought it might help us to think about it. When I read James chapter 2, and it says, Consider it pure, all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials is the first thing that enters my mind. Is it joy or the trial? Yeah. I mean, I do. I think I've always thought about that verse as being about trials. I've never thought, I never even considered to me that this verse is about joy. But I think maybe that's exactly what it is. Because when I look at the 12th ver a word in that verse, and you count out 12 words, all right? Uh, consider it pure joy when you encounter trials, knowing, all right? 
my perspective changes further because I, I'm going to stand here before you and I do absolutely believe that we can use joy as the means of enduring the trial. It's not ignoring the trial. Joy is the means of enduring the trial. That's powerful to me. Absolutely. Truly. I, I don't just, and, and that's, that's part of this. Okay, because we know how God is going to use us. That's a, she said that suffering is part of is our teacher. Granted, all right, but we can go through this not happy about it. Nobody's telling us to be happy about the fact that we're in a trial. Okay, but if I, again, if I am not led by joy, what will I be led by? Fear, something else, despair, sorrow, anger. What else? Depression, resentment. Any of that anger, that's, that's a big one. Any of that lead us where we want to go in the midst of a trial? Anybody use that effectively? Okay. If you had a medication in your medication cabinet and it was the least effective and most expensive, would you use it? Because that's what anger is. Okay. It's the least effective, most expensive tool we have at our means. And sometimes I use it and I'm embarrassed to say that, but I do. All right. Maybe you remember that this word endurance, okay? Because he says, knowing, boy, we don't have to consider this with an empty mind. We consider it joy, knowing that this word endurance has to do with the way that God enables his people. It's the way God enables his people to endure the trial, okay? God enables his people by walking with them. What does Psalms 23 say about that? Even though I walk, through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they what? That's endurance, isn't it? God enables us to endure the trials by means of joy because he walks with us. The second way he endures us is he helps us with it. Anybody seen that in their life? Everybody raise your hand, okay, all right? Come on, get them up. Uh-uh, no, get them up, all right? Everybody has seen God do this, right? My example of this is really quick. It's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When King Nebuchadnezzar, I use this all the time. I'm so impressed with this story, okay? I just can't imagine what it must have been like to be standing right there in front of that door, in front of that furnace. Can you imagine, all right? These men had to know something to be able to face that, didn't they? There's no way that you face something like a fiery furnace the way they faced it. They said, hey, even if our God doesn't save us, we're not gonna bow down to you. Do what you gotta do, right? They know something. You don't face death with attitudes like that unless you know something. So here's the point for me. To me, the power of joy in the midst of the struggle comes from knowing what God will do. And we know that, don't we? Can I get an amen? amen. <laughs> That's the only time I've ever said that. I always wanted to, right? <laughs> to wrap this document up, I'm, I'm done, okay? If I, was gonna, if I was going to document what I believe is the point um, of the first two verses of James, I would say this. James is focused on another. Not his trial. Trials, okay? James is focused on another. He was a bondservant of God. James was not focused on what he wanted and his thoughts. Because he is a bondservant, he was focused on what his master wanted. James preached trial, not joy, because James knew, James knew what God would do. Right? 
And that produced joy even as he walked through his own valley of death, didn't it? Paul knew the same thing. He absolutely knew these. And as I finish today, I'm going to read a scripture to you. Listen to the words, but more importantly, listen to the language of Paul's letter to the Philippians. It's in Philippians 3, verses 7 through 11. Don't, don't turn to it. If you want to, close your eyes and listen to the words of Paul as a bondservant, okay? But whatever things were gain to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count on all things, I count all things to be loss in view of their surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Who is Paul's focus? Christ. Did Paul use joy perhaps as the means of enduring his trials? Because he went through a lot of them, didn't he? Who does Paul serve? He, he serves Jesus Christ. You know what the first three first words are in the letter of the Philippians? Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this day. We thank you so much that you enabled James to write this letter that he wrote to us. And that the concept of joy in the midst of trials, albeit counterintuitive to us sometimes, Lord, is absolutely the way and the means by which you enable us to endure through the struggle. We thank you for that. And Father, we look to you to, to lead us and to guide us. And Father, we want to be your bondservants as well. We pray this in the powerful name of our brother, Jesus Christ. Amen. Have a great week.